Hello, and welcome back to the TetraCast. This is RPG Sites' weekly podcast where we get the site staff together to talk about our favorite genre of video games. Uh, a little bit of a smaller crew here today. Uh, there's still four of us. So maybe that's not true. My name is Brian Vitali. Joining me, I've got James Galizio. Hey, folks. Adam Vitali. Hello. And Chao Min Wu. Hello. So uh, no Josh Torres today. He is uh, dealing with some family uh, emergencies. And no George Foster. He's also doing out other stuff. So just the four of us. It's an interesting week to talk about because even though there's not a lot in terms of major headlines, in terms of the RPG site itself, I don't have the numbers in front of me to prove this, but this might be one of the busiest weeks we've had in a while in terms of how many reviews have gone up, how many guides have gone up, how many features have gone up, and even YouTube videos, even though that's entirely thanks to uh, James's effort. So we have a lot to t- talk about based on the, uh, on the site side in terms of things that we have put together and want, and want to share with you guys. And there is a bunch of, we're at the time of the year where people really start squaring out the dates for releases in the, in the back half of the calendar and also in, into early next year. But we have a lot of release date announcements. And a lot of them are kind of smaller titles, not major, you know, other than, you know, we learned recently that Horizon Forbidden West was going to land in 2022. But a lot of DLC titles are getting dated. A lot of uh, other ports are being dated. So we'll go back to that on the back half of the podcast. At the front half, we're going to go and talk about the games that we've been putting together reviews for and putting together videos for. And we'll, we'll be starting with one that actually the four of us chatted about in our casual mode series on YouTube, which has been uh, infrequent at best in terms of when we get together to put those up. Uh, but we got together last week on Sunday and talked about Huga Melodies of Steel. Now, to introduce this game, I'm going to hand it off to James, who is the best equipped to introduce what is Fuga Melodies of Steel and uh, why we're going to talk about it first. So yeah, Fuga Melodies of Steel is the latest title from CyberConnect 2. Uh, more specifically, it's the latest entry in the Little Tail Bronx series, which is kind of a, an important series for CyberConnect 2. They've never sold particularly well, but um, the very first game that um, they ever developed as a game studio was actually Tail Concerto, which is the first game in the series. So Fuga is actually kind of a big deal for them in the sense that it's their 25th anniversary game. It's their latest title in the Little Tail Bronx series, and it's their first self-published title. So there was a lot they put into this, and you can kind of tell it, like, just playing it. And thankfully, and... I'm not the only one that seems to um, to be in agreement, well, to uh, feel this way. But uh, you look at the PC Metacritic score, and right now the game is sitting at a an 89 out of 100, which is really impressive, considering not to be mean to them, but usually CyberConnect Two is one of those studios that does like seven out of ten anime games. Yeah, an 89 is really hard to get. I, mean, I know there's probably only not that many reviews, like six or something, but. So speaking from speaking from the outside looking in, like I've heard of Tail Concerto and I've heard of I hope I don't screw this up, Solata Robo. Those are like uh, relics in the eBay world. Well, I didn't realize. Well, I'm, I'm guessing we'll talk about that, but I didn't realize that those were paired together in in, in a loose way, like they were part of an overarching series. Um, and now we've got the next follow up to it. Like it's a series, but they're games that are designed to be played independently. So they have like, as far as I understand, some common DNA and some some theming consistencies, but they're not like a single 
linear story. Yeah, so Fuga itself is a bit of a departure from the other games in a franchise <laughs> for uh, one main reason. So Tail Concerto and Soul Robo, you both played as uh, a character kind of riding a robot, not quite a mech, because you're riding on top of it. And then you have like a bunch of various actions to do with said robot. Fuga is very much a strategy RPG where you play as a team of eventually 12 war orphans within this giant tank. And then the entire game is moving. So the way each level works is that you have a start point and end point, and then there's nodes on a route and tank moves automatically. As you get to each node, things will happen. It can be a battle, it can be a health pickup, it can be items, it can be a ruins exploration node, stuff like that. And then every so often there might be parts where the uh, map or the route will split and you have to choose whether you want to go um, go it on a normal route, a more dangerous route, an easy route, etc. I said in my review, but Fuga is really fascinating from a game design standpoint because that timeline system where you choose whether you want to go it for a more dangerous route or an easier route, obviously there is a um, give and take where, yeah, it's more dangerous, but you get more items. And you can use those items to better upgrade your tank. But if you like overexert yourself, then you're going to have damage units that you might not be able to use or you might be at like you might have way too little HP, and because the amount of healing aims you can get is ent- in, like entirely limited, and you um, when you go to towns in between each chapter, it's not that you can buy more, it's just entirely uh, bartering. The game itself is entirely based around the idea of resource management and deciding, okay, do you feel like you can take on a harder battle now so you can get more like resources so you can upgrade your tank more? At the cost of, if you miscalculated, you might have to spend those action points during the intermission on resting up your units instead of actually upgrading things like you wanted to in the first place. This isn't the best comparison, but for people struggling to visualize it, A, I do suggest you uh, check out our casual mode video on our YouTube because you'll see about an hour's worth of gameplay on that. But if anyone's played the Banner Saga, that's kind of what I think of, where in that game you have a caravan of people and you progress forward on a path and you make decisions about whether to stop into town or whether to keep going or which path to take. And there's like this attrition mechanic where you lose resources or health or points uh, depending on the what ha- what the outcomes of the events that you undertake. Uh, so this is kind of like an arcadey version of that where you'll have you'll you'll be on a path and you'll have to make some binary decisions about which route to take you'll have to take into consideration, am I equipped to deal with another battle or do I need to preserve what little health I have left because I know there's a boss fight coming up at the end, things like that. Very much a strategy game in several ways, not only in terms of how the battle takes place as like turn-based RPG, but in terms of the the long-term progression as well. And uh, the logical um, conclusion to that train of thought is the Soul Cannon, which... Uh... It's powered by the. It's powered by a forsaken child. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you'll have a you'll have a roster of six to twelve characters. You start out with six, and you get more as you go through the game. Basically, you have a bailout maneuver where you can sacrifice one of them. This isn't a spoiler. This is the premise uh, to basically get yourself out of a jam if you need to. So, obviously, the best case scenario is that you never have to resort to that. But the game deliberately shows you this in like its tutorialization about 
this is what you might need to do in order to proceed if not all not if everything doesn't fall your way perfectly so if it were up to me i would always reset before running into that but the problem is is that the way that saves work is that if you get to the point where you're being forced to use the soul cannon if uh, you can't fix things in the intermission right before the boss fight you're you're going to be forced to use it anyways and that's because you can only go back to the previous intermission and you might be at a state that you can't remedy that you can't fix yourself okay i like that it's almost um I'm bringing this up deliberately. It's almost kind of roguelike in a way where you just have to live with it as, with the choice that you made or the, the outcomes that you had. While Fuga was originally going to be a bit more of a roguelike, it's definitely not one now. So just to be clear, it's the same idea where you need to make the decision you have to in order to progress. But um, each playthrough is about like 15, 20 hours long, which isn't that long. It's actually a decent length. Or uh, if you want to just like, let's let's say in like a weekend, counting Friday, you can get it get it done without really stressing yourself too much. Now, the premise of the game is that it takes place in, this is my understanding based on having seen the first chapter or the first part of the game, is that it takes place in like an alternate history of World War One slash two hybrid, where yeah. it, it's very, it's very evocative of, to me, Valkyria Chronicles, where it has like the same sort of imagery, but it involves magitech and things like that and then of course i i i kind of feel like it's we should be uh bringing this up but all the characters are also anthropomorphic um cats and dogs so um just to be that that might have been obvious if you had any history with the other games in the series but if you if you weren't and didn't know that now you do yeah cyber connect 2 are a bunch of furries like it's not even a joke like they 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 sell like uh furry mouse pads on their uh web store so what is the story of this game like other than the fact that we have the um we 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 set up the premise that the that the kids are your you're basically your party members and that they take place in in this tank the objective as to like how these kids get caught in the crossfire of of a, of this battle is that their their hometown got attacked for reasons that are left vague at the start of the game can you just go into detail about like the sorts of things that you learn as you go through the chapters um, so basically, the main reason why they get into the tank, and uh, basically they board the tank to to rescue their parents that were taken as prisoners of war. That's the whole conceit of the the motivation. Yep. And then very quickly, and again, this is like first like hour, they realize, oh crap, we're we're going to have to kill people in order to rescue our parents. And yeah, suffering begins. It's weird because it has this very like. Saturday morning cartoon art style or furry art style, if you want to be, you know, cynical. Uh, but it, it immediately talks about war orphans and sacrificing your allies and how you have to kill on your own end to defend what you love. And it, it gets pretty dark. It's almost like some of those like secret of Nim, like Don Bluth, all dogs go to heaven, where it like has this weird pairing of very, very dark and mature stuff with a very like at its surface, at least friendly art style. Yeah. So, um, the art style is definitely something I want to touch on. Uh, not the furry aspect, uh, though. Technically, it's more, uh, more specifically kimono, which is like a like furry subculture thing in Japan. It, it you really don't need to know about that stuff, but it's like. But I say I do not know about that stuff. But uh, I really love like the kind of watercolor aesthetic they have for the character like designs and like the uh, kind of uh, shading work that they have done on everything. It's really, really nice. I love the uh, even the 3D artwork for like the Tyrannus, like inside and outside. Like 
when it's moving from each node, the way that it kind of sways to and forth with all of those moving parts, it's like makes sense because that's like the one main thing that they needed to make sure looked good in the entire game. But still, it's nice to see. Then, like inside the Tyrannus, like in the intermissions, you can see like all sorts of stuff like vibrating because of the tank moving. Like in the mess hall, you can see like a cup just like kind of dancing on its own because it's like vibrating pretty intensely. Yeah, it sells the motion of the tank pretty well. And within that sort of environment, between the battles and while you're like in the gaps of the nodes on the um, route that you progress through, you end up having like these, uh, you brought it up, the intermission sections where you have bonding events slash a limited resource to gather materials or to get to know your allies. It ends up being, I'm trying to think of a similar game where you have you have a limited amount of time where you have to make decisions on, do I want to cast the net at the back of the tank to gather resources to upgrade my gear? Or do I want to increase the bond level between two allies because I know that they have a good synergy and they'll, having that increase will help me out in combat? What are some of the other things that you can do like while well, the intermission stages between the, um, the turn-based battles? Um, so you can have characters talk amongst themselves to increase their um, bond which eventually can lead to link events that allows them to uh, um, use the link meter in combat to eventually get a link attack. Eventually, you get access to a notebook that will give you a variety of things that certain characters want to do during an intermission. And if you complete those characters' uh, desires, they will have access to hero mode during the next section of combat and whatnot. What's an example of like a desire for uh, a character? So for one, it can be as simple as I want to eat X uh, like food or I want to plant X thing at the farm or I want to uh, do scrap fishing, stuff like that. And it's basically giving them a one time buff for use in the next battle. It's well, it's not one time. It's not just the next battle. It's like until the next intermission. Oh, OK. So it's it's basically just giving yourself those options where instead of like a permanent upgrade, it just kind of gives you a boost until if you know you're going to be using that character for the next while, yep. might as well go see what you can knock out on that notebook and give them that advantage it, for the next several series of battles. And it's not, and even once you unlock their hero mode, it's not necessarily an instant buff because you still need to, uh, it starts out as a meter and uh, you need to raise it up, and then once it reaches the peak, it'll automatically change them into hero mode for a number of turns. What hero is hero mode, though? I assume it's like Super Saiyan or whatever. <laughs> Basically, the kids' uh, eyes grow orange, and they gain access to a number of like additional properties for attacks. Like, uh, one of them will have the chance to... Uh, well, actually, one of them will automatically apply some sort of debuff with their attack, whether it's stun, smoke, fire, or something like that. One of them, it'll double their skill damage. One of them, it'll their attacks will strip will strip all armor from a uh, an enemy, and uh, will ignore armor for damage calculations. Uh, another one might be able to uh, move immediately after using a skill. And that can be especially OP because you can chain that if you have a ton of SP and you're on like a boss fight. So it's like, oh, well, don't have to worry about uh, preserving that at the moment. Does, does uh, the game give any like in-universe explanation for the orange eyes and the increased like capabilities? No. Is, is it like bloodlust? I don't know. It seems kind of dark, but I, I was just wondering like that might fit the tone of yeah. the game. 
Yeah, I don't know the specific reason for it, but it is kind of funny because like one of the characters you get, uh, Wappa, has this the character design thing where you don't actually see her eyes because her hair is like all over it. And when she goes into hero mode, you don't see the glowing eyes, but you see like a glow underneath the hair where her eyes would be. It's not clear because you can see it's like kind of got like a diffusion effect on the way it looks because it, it, it's it's funny. It's funny. Well, I mean, so, I mean, it's it's very common art style where you can see like eyebrows or eyes like through the uh, the bangs of someone's hair. So the characters that you start with, the the premise you established was that they're going to try to rescue their parents. But the ones that you pick up during the game, because you start with six and I think you get six or seven more. Is it the same story with all of them or does it does it differ with the ones that are added after the uh, introductory chapter? Uh, some of them are different for the most part. All of them are searching for their parents. Uh, one of them specifically, well, two of them specifically aren't. But I don't want to talk about them because that would also be kind of spoiling. How does the game's combat work in terms of we know it's a turn-based system that's strategy-based, but you mentioned that some of the skills involved removing armor or yeah. involved uh, both moving after attacking. Because I have this set up like it's it looks almost kind of like an advanced wars sort of thing where you have your tank on the left side, kind of a division in the screen, and then the enemy units on the right side. Uh, and you just take turns using different abilities against each other. But like, what is some of the strategy involved or some of the mechanics behind the combat? So the way that combat works, uh, there's a number of different factors to talk to consider. Um, and actually, this was one of the things that took up the majority of my review, just because there's so many different things you really need to consider when you're in combat, like both in and out. Uh, first things first. So the way it works is, is that the tank Tyrannus has three gun slots. And depending on the uh, child that you have equipped to the gun, it'll change the appearance and the, uh, the utilization of the gun. So there's three different types of guns that you can have. You can have a machine gun, a grenade launcher, and a cannon. And uh, the machine gun is blue, grenade launcher is yellow, and cannon is red. That's important because the enemies that you face will... You, will have a clock icon, sometimes a few clock icons, underneath their health bar that's colored one of those three colors. And that lets you know which attack you can um, send their way to delay them. In the case of ones that have more than one clock icon, it lets you know, okay, which attacks you need to hit them with, whether it's multiples of one or a variety of different ones, in order to delay them on the timeline. Each time you attack, or each time you use a skill, even when you defend, you can see where that's going to move you on the timeline, and you can actually see where each of the different enemies and where your other party members are going to have their turn based off of just looking at the timeline at the top of the screen. It's a pretty standard thing. A lot of RPGs do it. Like, Trails does it. Final Fantasy X also has, like, a timeline and that adjusts whether you delay or slow enemies or, or stun them. So when you mention these clock icons that are beneath that have the color coding, do you have to take them out in a specific order? Like if it has one red delay icon and one blue, can you use either weapon type or do you have to go like work your way left to right or right to left? The order doesn't matter. Okay, so certain enemies might have multiple weaknesses that you can take advantage of, presuming that you've got the proper character slotted to do that. Yeah, and remember, you do need to take out all the clock icons to delay them. But what adds another oh, okay. wrinkle to things is that some units will have armor on them, which uh, makes it so that your attacks deal less damage. And uh, usually, well, for the most part, it's only the machine gun attacks, which are weaker but more accurate, that have access to skills that let you uh, chip away at armor. 
that actually the game that I think of that reminds me of that is actually Divinity Original Sin, which is a very different type of game. I forget if it's one or two, but every enemy in, th- in that game, it has like a basically a barrier that you got to punch through before you can actually deal real damage. And I know this that sort of that sort of idea can exist in multiple forms and many different types of games. It does bring an interesting dynamic where you want to make sure you have some of these machine guns or characters that can ignore armor or at least able to lower it and then follow that up with the um, the red weapons, yeah. the, which are like the rockets and grenade launchers to actually deal like the direct damage once you're able to penetrate through. You definitely have to... Um, you've only got three weapon slots. You said you got 12 characters and some of them act in support roles. So it seems like two two different people could play through this game and have kind of a vastly different approach to who they slot where and sort of like what techniques they employ. Yeah, exactly. And then some of the boss designs themselves, we saw this a little bit when we fought the uh, prologue boss. They not only have this delay mechanic and this armor mechanic, but they'll have bespoke sort of strategies to them where they'll have we, what we saw in the tutorial was, or I don't, I don't know if it was a tutorial or chapter one, but it was a tank that basically had like a command bridge that would heal the body of the tank periodically that you couldn't out damage if you didn't take it out. So you kind of had to make sure that that supporting unit was disabled or out of commission at the same time that you had the armor lowered and wanted to deal the most damage possible. So it does seem like you have to be able to be flexible or at least cognizant of when you understand how the different enemy units are working together and the best way to overcome whatever individual benefit that they have in terms of healing themselves or restoring their armor or damaging you and making sure um, you I forget what the mechanic was, but there was a there was a way that if you knew an, uh, an attack was incoming, you put up a shield. Basically, you have to know when to go on the defensive to restrict most of the damage on your own end. Yeah, everything kind of comes together. And like I kind of tweeted about like a few days ago, it's really impressive how Fuga's won those games where all the disparate parts kind of come together and you can see how it's very specifically designed with all those parts in mind. It's like that's just like really good game design. And like once you're in like in it, playing it, and you're like making those decisions on the fly about, okay, I think I can deal with uh, some tougher enemies. So I'm going to try and get more um, resources that way to, oh shit, I messed up. I'm going to have to basically uh, rest up my units, which is going to make, make it harder for me to upgrade the things I want to because I have less action points actually available to me and so on and so forth. It's really, really cool stuff. And like I said, we gave it a 9 out of 10. Some other places gave it really good review scores. Right now, it's an 89 out of 100 on Metacritic. Give it a shot. Like, this is CyberConnect 2's first self-published title. They've put, like, they're all into it. And it's like, it it sucks because, like, right now is probably the worst possible time for them to release it. (laughs) Yeah, because there's a ton of competing mindshare yeah, this week got, basically yeah because yeah. you got the great ace attorney chronicles you've got the world ends with you neo you got final fantasy pixel remasters we didn't review it but there was also samurai warriors 5 there's a bunch of non uh jrpg and non like um Japanese lots of big titles this this time yeah just crazy amount of games releasing this week and uh very easy to see that Fuga probably is going to be the one that falls through the cracks, but I do implore you to give it a shot because it's a fantastic game. It, it seems like it's just it's smartly made and everything kind of meshes together. And um, before we before we move on from it, 
I just thought the one of the most interesting things about it goes back to that um, resource management part where a lot of times, so many RPGs these days, they want to convenience the player, which is good most of the time because you don't want to you want to respect people's time. You want you don't want to like introduce grind or tedium. So many games they heal you after every battle or they give you save points copiously that heal you. Where in Fugo has this like attrition idea where you might be in a in an encounter where you know you can out damage the enemy or out you know you're you've got more firepower than they do but because of, you have to keep in mind that long term keeping yourself healthy enough to date so that you can spend your action points on increasing your bond level or, or filling out those character notebooks you kind of want to play sort of cautiously carefully and reduce like minimize as much damage as possible yeah well also minimizing how much uh, you're uh of your own resources are used right like, like your skill points to use those action yeah. uh weapon abilities so you got to really figure out a balance you got to figure out okay well if i don't use a skill here it might put me in a bad situation but if i do put use a skill here i won't have as much skill points for later and it's like you're making those little decisions constantly and it keeps the whole thing engaging it's yeah it seems like if you are a fan of those those sorts of games where you actually really have to come up with your own strategies on the fly it really seems like that this is a uh, a good fit for that if if you gel with the um the art style and the premise really interesting game one that i probably would not really have exposed myself to if it wasn't for your coverage of it so if you want to see more do go to our youtube channel where we do have basically the same four of us just talking over basically seeing some gameplay and it was Adam Chow and I's first time seeing it, so it's basically a very genuine reaction to kind of what we saw and what we thought of the game. And James, you have been very busy these last couple of weeks because you were also the go-to person for this next release that you had also just brought up as competing for uh, for Mindshare in the um, uh, alongside we, the release of Fuga. Can we just take Go a ahead. moment to appreciate just how many great releases have come out within the last like week and a half? It's kind well, of yeah, we, we, kind, we kind of talked about it with the different contexts about what Fugo was up against, but also just in terms of just being, you know, at having a plethora of options to choose from. So August seems a little bit more, uh, a little bit more bare, a little bit more spread out. But July ended with a uh, started and ended really with a with a lot of switch kind of ties into what i brought up at the start of this podcast how we had more features and guides and everything go up than we've had in a long time so it just kind of goes to show how packed of a couple of weeks it's been and the next title we're going to talk about is one of those and that is the great ace attorney which yep. released was it the same day the same day as the world ends the with you day. and samurai warriors five oh, okay so not the same day as fuga but in the same same day as several other games and in the same window as Fuga. So uh, this is another game that we have obviously the written review on, but you did we did a video, not a casual mode, but a video review. And by we, I mean James on our YouTube channel for The Great Ace Attorney. So uh, handing it back off to you. Uh, I don't have any experience with Ace Attorney, but I know that this is a game that has been kind of a white whale for the series for a while. It's had a, at least the first part of it has had a fan translation for a good while, and now it's got the official release. So let's kick it off with your thoughts on the Great Ace Attorney. Okay, so first off, and um, I feel like a bunch of people have played both Great Ace Attorney 1 and 2, because this is a two-pack. 
uh, is probably my favorite entries in the series, uh, specifically because of the way that um, the story um, comes together. Because one thing about Ace Attorney is that usually, like, so you had the original trilogy, which is the first game on the DS, Justice for All, and Trials and Tribulations. And those are great games, and it's a great trilogy, but each game in and of itself kind of, like, introduces and, like, deals with its own specific issues. Whereas Great Ace Attorney 1 and 2 are two halves of one big story. So the types of um, foreshadowing and the types of storytelling that they can do with a duology that's set up to to be a duology specifically for the story from the get go means that you got you can get some really interesting stuff, especially on repeat playthroughs. And I guess I should kind of talk about what Ace Attorney actually is if you're not familiar with it. Okay, you're a lawyer, probably uh, doing well. You're a lawyer in a cartoony sense, and. <laughs> and and what and what I mean by that is is that you would definitely be thrown out of any actual court of law. But uh, thankfully, courts of this law. This is not meant to be a sim. Thankfully, courts of law in the Ace Attorney universe are just as uh, incompetent as the uh, player character, so it, it works out. Uh, but basically, Great Ace Attorney one and two are more inherently connected compared to just the uh, the original trilogy, where they might feel just more like traditional sequels yeah yeah and i guess the gameplay structure is probably the same right you're trying to find uh contradicting things about each person's like case and you're just trying to use that and is it as like punishing as like the second game where it's like you get this one little dialogue wrong it's like boom you're punished for it and you get free strikes you're out and you're... um it's similar to that like um it's more like the first game where you have uh five uh chances so it's just like simply, okay, get five chances to mess something up. If you uh, mess up five times in a row before getting to a like a uh, intermission mark in a trial, then you're sent back to the loading screen. You need to reload your save and all that. That sounds Between... really basic, but actually, like, I was actually kind of curious, like, what is the fail? Because the fail state in a traditional combat focus game is easy to identify you you know you lose and you got to go back to the save point but like if you fail to present the evidence or find the contradiction or know you know when to introduce which item in your inventory and greatest attorney i didn't know like what when when chow says the word punish like you go back to the title screen and you have to start over the trial from the beginning or from the last intermission and yep like try again think a little bit harder next time okay yeah so um ace attorney as a series is usually uh Placed into two distinct uh, gameplay aspects. So you've got the investigation sections where you're going around different areas, talking to people, um, looking for um, clues and uh, like uh, evidence and whatnot, and also investigating the evidence itself. And then you have the trial um, sections, and you do not get to the trial sections until you get everything you need in order to actually progress through the trial. So it's not like, oh, you can go to the trial early and be absolutely screwed because you don't have all the evidence. No, the way the Ace Attorney works is that it's the investigation segments. There's a certain degree of freedom, but it's mostly linear. And once you're actually in the trials, it's like the way forward is completely linear, too. It's just you'll have moments where there will be testimony for witnesses and you'll, you can press like each of their statements and then like, 
if you find something that's contradictory, then you can present evidence and move forward. But for the most part, Ace Attorney's a pretty linear game. I never considered that. Like, if you were in an investigation section and you missed a piece of evidence and the game allowed you to go to trial without it, that would be really punishing. That sounds like a challenge mode version of the game or something like that, where it's just like, oh, you you missed it, you lose. But it seems like they they kind of rein it in and just they don't even let you progress until you until the game knows that you have everything you need. But it won't tell you obviously the order or how to how to involve it in the trial. But it does make sure that you at least have it present and you're not completely stonewalled and you don't know it until you realize you're missing a piece of evidence. So the thing about Great Ace Attorney, besides the um, whole it's a duology thing and that it was never translated, probably important to talk about why it was never translated. Simply put, the Doyle estate are litigious, and Great Ace Attorney features Sherlock Holmes, or should I say, Herlock Sholmes. <laughs> uh, legally uh, yeah. distinct uh, Sherlock Holmes, if you and will. His, and his uh, partner, uh, Watson, I mean Wilson. But yeah, it's very, very similar to the... Um, it's kind of weird because like the character of Sherlock Holmes is public domain, but some of the stories are not. It's, it's like they're, you know, the, the Doyle estate is clutching to it and we we also see this a bit like when you when i'm when i'm told that that's the reason it wasn't translated for so long and they had to make take weird liberties to try to avoid it in the official localization it reminds me of the um the jojo translations where they have to work around the copyright for a lot of the characters and stands that are based on like music artists music yeah yeah so (laughs) where instead of doing a brilliant diamond they have to do shining diamond or, or or things like that but and in this case, we get like Herlock Sholmes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what they went with. Uh, cool ice. <laughs> oh, cool ice instead of vanilla. Yeah, but they don't really have a choice, I guess, because that's just how copyright works. I just wonder just... how they get away with certain ones. Like in the Fate series, they they were able to use the Sherlock Holmes as a servant of some kind. So don't. Well, know that might fall. That might fall into that weird thing where certain aspects are public domain, but certain ones aren't. So Yeah, I know one of the things the Doyle estate does is that they argue that Sherlock Holmes showing like emotion and having a conscience is against the copyright because in their argument, huh. which is bullshit, but it's what they use to argue that Sherlock Holmes was a piece of shit until the very, very last few like books, which are still in copyright. So if you're showcasing Herlock, well, Sherlock Holmes with... um any emotion whatsoever, then obviously you're taking um, inspiration from the books that are still in copyright. That is, I don't know. <laughs> really asinine. That is just, yeah, that was gonna, I was thinking of a word, asinine is a good one. But, okay, so in the story, like, is he is he actually portraying himself, or is it just a character that's meant to be, like, referencing? He's Sherlock actually Holmes. portraying himself. Or the Herlock Sholmes version of himself. Is, no. is he only in the second game, or is he in the first game too? He's in the first game too. All He's right, because like, I saw you playing like the first two trials or trial and a half of the first game, but those took place in Japan, and I guess later you go to England. Yeah. So the way it works, and this is probably another reason why I think it localized at the uh, on the third DS is uh, so. Even if you haven't played Ace Attorney, you're probably familiar with the idea of uh, Japanifornia or the fact that when they originally localized Ace Attorney, they changed the setting from Japan to California without changing any of the assets. So people always knew that, yeah, no, this is this isn't supposed this isn't L.A. This is supposed to be Tokyo, stuff like yeah. that. 
You get your so, famous awkward zombie, eat your hamburgers, Apollo. <laughs> yep. Um, which, by the way, the Ace Attorney Twitter account referenced it with uh, eat your fish and chips, Ryunosuke. With, uh, yeah, if you have any knowledge box. of that meme, it's, it's, it's a good laugh. So go to the Ace Attorney Twitter account and scroll down. Yep. So, yeah. So <laughs> one of Phoenix Wright's uh, great ancestors was uh, Ryunosuke Naruhodo in uh, Japan, which uh, I guess is now the same deal in both... Uh, the Japanese titles and the Western ones. So I guess it's now official that uh, Phoenix Wright is uh, is the son of Japanese immigrants, which is kind of cool. Yeah, only but only in the localized version, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, so yeah, uh, it takes place in like Meiji era, uh, not Renaissance era, but like uh, turn of the century, like uh, 20th century uh, Great Britain. So it's basically a century early 1900. Yeah, the a century before the actual like regular Ace Attorney games happen, you have all sorts of things happen in both Japan and Great Britain. And the way it's framed is is that it's the epic tale between two island nations. And whatnot, so, being Japan, and Great Britain. Yeah, like, I have a question. Like, isn't like one reason like you wouldn't change much of the story because there's lots of like prejudice themes oh, going yeah. on in the storyline. Yeah, I even kind of made a joke about it in the video. Not a joke, but saying, look, uh, Great Ace Attorney has themes, and I don't want to talk about them in the review, but once you actually get to playing it and you see it, you'll understand what it's talking about. And all the while, when I had that voice line, I was showcasing like characters from the game being incredibly racist to Japanese people in the uh, actual footage. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I saw some editorials about it, how they thought it was a little bit too blatant. But it also, like, it kind of fits the setting in the early 1900s where uh, you kind of had that phobia. And it makes yeah. sense that it would, like, show itself in certain ways. And people that would end up in a courtroom wouldn't be, you know, people that you're sympathetic to in certain ways. So uh, based on what I saw in the first trial, it seems like it makes it, it, it gives it enough headroom. Where it feels yeah. like, yeah, they're introducing this to serve a purpose, to, to serve a story. Wanna, one thing I also noted, so most of the prejudice in the game is anti-Japanese. But there was that, I think it was the first trial in the second game I was watching James play, where there actually there is a, there is the, a Japanese character being a little bit of a dick to an English character as well. It's, it's not balanced, but I saw, I don't think the game is just painting all English people as like, you know, Westerners, foreigners are bad, you know, because um, they're always like racist towards us. And it's not quite that. Oh, it's like, definitely not that like yeah. um, and especially in the second game, they really just hammer at home that uh, like there's characters that say like racism is bad, basically. Like very, it's not just painting like English people as your villain. Right. Yeah. So, it's It's not about like they're like a targeted group. It's more like the concept of this prejudice and it's more it's of, more like, like in this in this, cultures, I, right. in this setting other, if you had an asshole character this is how they would present themselves this is how they would behave yeah and it's there's some things i do want to talk about but it kind of spoils like racism isn't the main theme of great ace attorney it's just one of the themes and it's like right it's just it's it's almost part of the like setting. it's like it's used as a scapegoat for the actual main theme not well, scapegoat not in the sense that Basically, 
it, it man, I, I, I want to talk about it, but spoiling, so I'm not. But one of the things I really, really love about Great Ace Attorney and why I was waffling between giving it a 9 and a 10, I ultimately gave it a 9, but I was considering like pushing for a 10, was because it has something to say. And like previous Ace Attorney games have sometimes kind of like waffled around trying to say something specifically. Like everyone said, always said that, oh, Ace Attorney is was made as a commentary of like the kangaroo court system of like Japan and whatnot. Well, there's definitely some of that here in Great Ace Attorney in the sense of how it portrays the British court system and the British legal system. And it gets really fascinating later on. And once everything comes together, it just, it, it really is fantastic. And I feel like I should mention actually that uh, Colin also reviewed the game, but for Nintendo Insider, and he ended up giving it in a 10 out of 10. So it's like. Colin and his 10 out of 10s. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, it was really cool to see. Um, uh, obviously, we have some contributors here on staff that also contribute to other outlets. So it's. Really cool to see, you know, people like you and Colin playing through it in parallel and seeing whatever snippets we can behind the scenes and how you guys are both taking to the game, both big fans of the series. Now, if you're not a big fan of the series, this is a dumb question that I think I know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is this a good place to jump in? Yes, because it has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the series besides like very, very like slight references. And this is the first time the series is on PC too, right? No, um, the original trilogy was available on PC with the. Oh, I had, I had no idea that that was the case. Okay, but so I now there's definitely... no excuse for me, basically. Yep. Yeah, um, you can start with either the original trilogy or this one. Either works. Um, I feel like most people will probably have a better time with this one, but the pacing is definitely a bit interesting in the sense that, again, because there are two halves of one story, each game isn't really paced to be well piece this will pace the same way as like a regular ace attorney game like it's better to think of it as one big game rather than two halves that come together it's like just so basically you would suggest once you complete the greatest attorney one just going straight on into two like yeah okay how, how long of a playtime is that just curious like is this like 15 hours each 30 hours each i just have no frame of reference 60 to 70 hours total mm-hmm all right, well, that's about where a big, you know, full-fledged RPG would fall. So, that's the that's the cross that we bear as an RPG-focused site is that uh, all of our games are quite long. Now, Ace Attorney really isn't quite an RPG. Obviously, it's more of a visual novel, but I know that's not quite a correct. It's more of a puzzle game. Like, is that what you it, is that what you would like categorize it? It's a point-and-click game with uh, the trial segments being like uh, logic puzzles that you need to uh, figure out in order to progress. Uh, people okay. will call it a visual novel, and for all intents and purposes in the West and the Western lexicon, games like Ace Attorney are considered visual novels. It's just that... It, They're on it the is, fringe. Yeah. Well, we've we've seen that sort of like genre fogginess all over the RPG space, where it's like, is this an RPG? Is this not? A, at one point, you just have to say, like, does it really matter? <laughs> it's a great game. <laughs> or maybe not so great, but depending on what you're talking about. But yeah, thank you so much, James, for you have been very, very busy the last couple of weeks because uh, you are basically responsible for both those reviews, both those videos that are up on our YouTube channel and first 50 minutes of this podcast. So you have earned a well-deserved break. And I say that as we're going into the other game, 
that we talked about releasing this week, which was Neo, The World Ends With You, which we had talked about when Colin, who we had mentioned previously, had done the preview video for Neo, The World Ends With You last month. But now it has released. I have been seeing it all over my timeline. And I know Adam wants to get to it eventually once it gets on PC, which is right. uh, which is still undated, right? Yeah, it's just summer 2021. So that's, and, I guess, any time before like the end of September, I guess. Yeah, September 20th or whenever summer technically ends. I don't know how beholden publishers are to that specific window. But yeah, so Neo, the world ends with you. I guess I am remiss to say this, but I know that the person here that's been putting the most time into this is James. Uh, once again, you are you're that we're just going to put a picture of you as the as the headliner for this uh, um, podcast. But the thing is, is that I know that this game can be difficult to talk about for fear of spoilers. So I don't know if maybe you can just get some general impressions, like how you feel this is as they follow up to the original game, which was kind of like a cult classic for the longest time. And then it was released on mobile devices, and then it's got its remix on Switch. Each time they added a little bit more to it, suggesting a sequel, and then the sequel is finally announced. So do you think Neo, The World Ends With You lives up to the foundation that the original game set out? I'm still very early on, so I'm kind of wanting, I kind of want to avoid sweeping statements. But from what I've played so far, I'm incredibly impressed with how much of the original game that they managed to recapture with Neo. It's amazing. Like even the combat system, which is very obviously different because it's a third person 3D action game versus uh, the original DS versions, like full right. screen, single screen. Like, yeah. One of the defining aspects of uh, the original game's combat to me, and which was also the reason why I, to this very day, I say, oh, played on DS was the puck system and how you had to like juggle between you and your partner in order to keep a combo going in order to get access to your special attack, which was the, the efficient way of um, getting battles done. And once you got used to it, it became second nature and was like a great part of the battle system, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously you have one screen for Neo and, but this time you have multiple party members so instead of having the puck system, they have something similar called beat drop. And the way it works is, is that as you do use different pins and like the way it works in Neo is that each character has a specific pin attached to it. So let's say Fret has a uh, projectile pin. So you use his uh, rapid tap projectile pin to attack the enemy. The, he ends a combo and then a ring surrounds the enemy called the beat drop. And if you follow it up with a different pin attack, you'll get um, a percentage point added to your meter, which can eventually be used for the ultimate attack. So in practice, especially since you can chain these together and then there's like specific pins that can like juggle enemies and whatnot. In practice, the flow of the combat's really, really similar to the DS game. It's just on a single screen with a controller using like multiple party members. And it's fascinating that they were able to figure that out because it's it really does feel like the world ends with you. Now, um, did you play the uh, either the mobile version or the Switch no. version of the original game? No. I was curious, like, maybe Adam can interject here, but, like, the, the original game, did they make any similar changes when they brought that to a single-screen device, or not really? Not really. They just sort of automated 
um, the second player or the second character, and then you're just controlling with the touch screen, basically. Weak. Yeah, I think that's the main reason why I never picked it up, because to me, like both thematically and from a gameplay standpoint, the acting to judge, um, juggle the multiple characters is like a core element of uh, the series DNA. And I can say that because it's a core element of Neo's battle system too now. So yeah, it's kind of weird to call it like it's it's a series now. It's not just this one off DS game that everyone loves. And it's not just the battle system that really feels like the world ends with you. Like even like I know it's like a 3D world and the way you're moving through the areas, it's like obviously it's very different, but it still feels like the world ends with you from the scanning to talk with the to like read different people's thoughts to imprint to uh like everything just and this it feels like what, what you would expect from a sequel yeah it's like well no not even that so much as it feels like i am playing the world ends with you for the first time again and not in the sense that it's super super similar necessarily to the first game but it gives off the same vibes even if things aren't exactly the same it gives you the same feeling and that's insanely impressive to me yeah the fact that they were to take those intangibles and still repackage it in a way that is distinctly different no dual screen no puck passing but still give you that same that same resonance that the original game did yeah and it still stands on its own it has its own unique elements like the new main characters are tons of fun like nagi uh, rindo and frets and whatnot um there are returning characters but they aren't the main spotlight for the most part. Like you still like have people returning like Minam uh, Minamimoto and all that. Well, Minamoto, I think. Yeah. Um, and all that sort of thing. You have some returning Reapers, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's the story. I'm still very early on. I just got to week two, day three, which would be a spoiler, but I mean, the first game had three weeks. I'm pretty sure this one's going to have at least three weeks, too. So so we'll probably revisit Neo, The World Ends With You, once more people have played it, maybe either next week or when the PC release comes out. So that, that is a nice, cool introduction to know that it's giving you, you know, a really positive impression right out of the gate. We'll probably spend another podcast going really into detail about it, maybe once um, we got George on here, because I know he's like the hugest fan of the series. So I'd really like to see his thoughts and then maybe if Adam's played it by then. So table the future discussion for Neo for later, but it's nice to know that it's giving off that great first impression. Another release that I don't want to let fly under the radar is the Final Fantasy Pixel Remasters. So these have kind of been up and down in the, in the, the news space for several reasons, some good and some not so good. Obviously, we had our big feature a month ago about what the when the big reveal of what the games actually looked like, which was kind of like the, the number one thing on everyone's mind. So I feel like for a long time, people were very down on these. But the impressions that I've gotten in the last couple of days have actually been quite positive relative to the pre-release cycle. And Adam, I know that you basically prepared yourself for these pixel remasters by playing through the PlayStation 1 versions, if I remember right, of Final Fantasies 1 and 2. So you have like the most direct comparison to what the games felt like and then now, now what they feel like with the Pixel Remasters. So uh, what's your time been like uh, playing through these newer versions of these games? So I originally played Palm Fantasy 1 and 2 when they released on Game Boy Advance back in like the early aughts. And um, I played the PSP versions after that. 
And then I kind of learned after the fact, after I played them, that those versions of the games were made much easier overall in terms of just your stat increases, how much money you have. Um, they do have extra content, um, which is pretty cool, especially for like Final Fantasy II. It literally has like a post-game story that kind of just continues it pretty naturally. And then when the remasters were announced, and they said they're going to be more like the originals, I have never actually played like the original SNES or NES versions of Final Fantasy One and Two, and not three either. Um, that one's only was only available in Japanese, of course, officially. So I just decided let me play the PS One versions because I know those versions are more like the originals. They don't have the new content of like the GBA PSP versions, and uh, I also know they're like balanced differently. They're a little bit you know a little bit tougher maybe not so easy going so i want so i played those and i enjoyed them um for example final fantasy one the most recent like the gba psp versions of final fantasy one they use mp as your like magic pool whereas the original version as well as the playstation one version uses like spell charges like the vancian system from dungeons and dragons so like okay that's a pretty significant mechanical change and i want to experience how the game plays like with that and I mentioned very briefly on a podcast like three weeks ago that it kind of changes how you approach going into dungeons and how you manage your charges and things like that. You don't just have a pool that you can like just down ethers to to re- to replenish. However, in the new version, you you actually can down ethers. They added them back in to the remaster of one. And I know this might sound like a really minute small change, but it's kind of not. Because it changes so, the entire like resource management aspect of your spell charges, right? But yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to sell James short, but he did play the uh, the NES yeah, version the earlier this year. So mm-hmm. I, I mentioned Adam earlier had been preparing for this, but James has also played one and two recently. Yep. Yeah, but like just in the very first town, you can buy ethers, and they are 150 gil. Now, 150 gil early on is a, a decent chunk of money, but Eventually, that's nothing. Like you can buy ninety nine ethers, and it's it's pretty much negligible. It's it's pocket change. It's nothing. And so, like in the let's just say starting around, let's just say the halfway point, roughly. I'm like, I have a black mage, and when I run into random encounters, I can just you know, Fandara, Faraga, and eventually just flare all the enemies to death. And um, normally, you really couldn't do that all the time because your charges were precious in a way. You couldn't just casted every battle that'd be wasteful right you want to save it for a boss fight or for when you really need it but now it's like you don't have to save them at all you just use it as often as you want down some ethers to refill your mp and it does in a way as long as you have a black mage makes this version of the game kind of the breeziest that's not necessarily a bad thing like uniformly like that makes this remaster bad it just it's well, a i was actually gonna ask like it. do you think do you think the game loses anything by being so easy to break open or uh, well i do think in a way it's interesting when you have to like resource manage and balance your team a bit and decide when to use spells and when not to but if you're just wanting to like play the game and experience it just uh just to get like a casual look at here's how final fantasy started with some you know, conveniences thrown behind it, then sure, it's fine. But it is certainly a characteristic of the remaster that you're not going to get in, like, the PS1 version. I don't even like, like it. Yeah, it's it's very... 
Um, it, it makes it so you can kind of just blow through the you know most of the game pretty pretty easily, pretty readily. I feel like adding ethers in the Final Fantasy One defeats the entire purpose of the spell charge system. And I feel like if you were going to have ethers in the first place, they should have just had a BMP. And also, like I think you could have probably made it not so bad if ethers were more expensive like literally make them 2000 gil instead of 150 or maybe even more than that just yeah make it so you can't just buy 99 you know without any without even thinking like just it's just like an economy thing right but, if there was a, if there was a trade-off that said like uh you know if you want to spam magic and you via ethers it's going to be a drain on your wallet or, or something make like them that. limited make them like a one-time purchase of each shop or something yeah, like Final Fantasy games in the back then wasn't really good on the on resource management. It's just buy a like a large stock and you'll never have to worry about it again. How do you refill charges in the original game? Resting? You just sleep in an inn. So yep. all right, so like... this, this is gonna sound really dumb. It makes perfect sense, but like what my brain keeps going to is Baldur's Gate, because that's also based on D D, which Final Fantasy One has a lot of inspirations from. Final Fantasy One so... is basically D D in like we we've probably talked about this on a previous podcast too. It, Final Fantasy One is so blatantly just stealing D and D ideas and monsters and everything, and it wasn't until two that where they decided to like, okay, we have to create our own little, our own identity in terms of monsters and creatures and Final Fantasy. What we now consider just Final Fantasy staples, a lot yep. of them don't show up until two. Yeah, um, like bombs, Final Fantasy two, marbles, Final Fantasy two, chocobos, Final Fantasy two, behemoth, yep. Final Fantasy two. And then, like, the Final yep. Fantasy 1, some of the creatures that are iconic there were almost accidents. Uh, I love the story that you told me about the Ochu. That's Final Fantasy 1, right? Yes. Where it was, like, a mistranslation of a Baldur, uh, D&D creature called, like, an Otuga. Uh, yep. Let me make sure I get that right. Where it's, like, it's got the same idea where it's, like, this this venomous plant tendril guy. Uh Yeah, Otuga, which is from the first edition of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, and then now it's a now it's an Ochu when you refer to the Final Fantasy version of it. So almost like an accident. Now, outside of game balance, like I think the pixels look pretty good. I I'm not a stickler. <laughs> There's the title. I think the they look pretty nice. Pretty good. No, I mean like the pixel art characters and whatnot. The uh, admittedly the uh, the advanced classes look a little bit goofy. They do, um, but they, remember, look, they look a little goofy that. in the original version too. To be honest, um, so it's faithful. But and the music is kind of the the standout star of these remasters is that the, the music is fantastic. They have a whole team of arrangers behind it. On principle, I kind of wish they gave you an option to switch soundtracks in some regard, just to to give the option. But even without a soundtrack toggle, the new music is like really really good. It's hard. It's, it's one of those, it's one of those it. things where it's like independent on how good the new music is. It would have been nice yeah. just for like record keeping, and that's a, maybe a weird clerical well, way. To like think I said, of just it, on but... principle, just having a toggle just to give you the option would be nice. But um, some of the spell effects look pretty cool. You know, the like I said, the pixel art, the backgrounds uh, look great. And so, in terms of its presentation, um, the only, the biggest thing is the font. Now you can swap a font file from the English to the Japanese version and just rename it real quick. And it gives you the font. It looks like the PSP standard font that uh, is quite a bit better than the original English font. I, I haven't actually used the original English font at all because the 
it's very trivial just to swap a font file to get a much better font. It's still not a pixel font. I know there's already some mods to put in a pixel font into the game because, of course, there are. Um, but if you didn't want to mess with a mod, just doing a flip, a quick font swap is still a pretty good, just quick and easy option for you. I still don't really understand what they're going for with the original English font. It's just so thin, so small. And if you're playing this it's on like a to big read. monitor like... or on a TV, like a, like several feet away, I know it's a PC game at the moment. It's just like, it's hard to read. It leaves a lot of empty space in text boxes. It's like, I don't, I don't understand. Um, and I'm, and I'm pretty font agnostic. I'm not, you know, I'm not like dyslexic because I know dyslexic people are really sensitive to certain fonts because they're hard to read. Um, but even, even me, I'm just like, I don't understand it. So well, I saw Tim Rogers actually tweeting about the, uh, the font change, which by the way, if you Google pixel remaster font, uh, our reviewer for this trilogy for the first three games that released because four, five and six are on the way. One, two and three are available now. A PC and mobile only, no console announcements yet. Um, but he was the one that Scott was the one that actually found this uh, this font change. And so if you Google Pixel Remaster font, you will find our article on it. So he did a, He was, you know, a wizard to be able to discover that it's just a, a fix in the game files. But like Tim Rogers was talking, uh, tweeting about it. And I saw comments on his art on his tweet about people playing this on the mobile version. Smaller screen, closer to your face, still can't read that that damn narrow font that they went with, which it seems like if you want to play devil's advocate that they did it to maybe prevent overflow issues because it's a, you know, it's a variable width instead of fixed width or whatever. But as far as you and Scott have been able to notice switching to the, yeah, I haven't noticed anything. I I finished final fantasy one. I'm actually now into final fantasy two and haven't noticed any issues. I know I have a, I know friends who have finished final fantasy three already and haven't noticed any issues. So it's just like, I did why not there's down the text to the line below so you don't really have to worry about overflow issues and yeah. if the name's too long it actually squishes the font to be a little smaller too yeah huh and okay so, so it's like so it's like they considered all of that stuff but then decided to go with this like super conservative tiny font anyways i, I don't anyways, know enough about font do this do the font <laughs> with like anyway moving on all right. No, do the font swap. It's basically a pure upgrade. Is it perfect? No, but it's still 100% better than the original um, English font. I'm now a good couple of hours into Final Fantasy II, and I, I also recently played Final Fantasy II, the PlayStation 1 version. Uh, the reason why I wanted to do that, it doesn't have like a different magic system like uh, Final Fantasy 1 did. But I know the GBA and PSP versions of Final Fantasy II, if you, if you couldn't tell, the GBA and PSP versions are pretty much mechanically identical. They look a little different, but they're pretty much the same. But those versions of Final Fantasy II were, were made quite a bit easier in terms of how many stats you get and things like that. And um, I know some people aren't a big fan of that because it just it maybe. You know that it's that whole convenience argu- argument again that it just you don't have to think about it too much. You just your stats go up and you're good to go. So I wanted to play Final Fantasy One, just like it's basically a hard mode in a way, and or Final Fantasy Two on PS One, excuse me. And um, going through the remaster now, it feels more like the GBA and PSP versions, but there are quite a few mechanical differences in this version. For instance, just one example, your HP in this remaster version, and this is the only version where it's like this, it can go up at the end of any battle. 
in the original versions and any other version, your HP could go up. It had a chance if you took damage. The more damage you took, the more likely it was, I believe. So this had some effects where like if you had a character just sitting in the back row and not getting hit, their HP would actually suffer a bit because they would never take hits. Um, so you don't have issues like that anymore. But it also means the game does throw a lot of HP at you. So I have like way higher HP than I would normally have um, for this. And it's just sort of an ease thing. Like now you don't need to worry about it. You, you may have heard the uh, you may have heard the uh, the meme where you can hurt you can have your characters hurt each other. But now that now with this with this new system, that's basically now completely pointless because you'll just gain HP anyway. Also, there are a couple of other pretty big differences. For example, when, in the original game, if you had a character in the back row, they could not be targeted by a melee attack. So that did mean that back row characters would suffer HP and also like defense and evasion uh, stat growth because they would rarely, rarely get targeted. And so that's what leads to those stat growths. But now they can with reduced damage. So that means, in a way, putting a character in the back row, whether it's like a bow user or a mage, is more viable because they'll still get targeted. That means they'll still get chances to get those stats, stat ups. Another change that was made that I haven't looked too much into, the original Final Fantasy II had a system in place where different equipment gave you different penalties to how well magic worked for you. And so, like, if you wore armor, like heavy armor, your magic would suffer. In the original game, it didn't. the game didn't really, like, tell you this or show you this in any way. That's a very Saga-esque thing. But it was there, and it was present, and it's been documented now. It was removed in the PS1 version, and it's been removed in every version since. But it's back, in a way, in this version, apparently. I haven't looked into it too much. So, um, in terms of balance, in terms of mechanics, and, like, the nitty-gritty number stuff. The remaster is kind of a new version of Final Fantasy II. It is easier than the PS1 version, and it's more in line with the GBA PSP versions, specifically due to things like you're going to get way more HP in this version versus any other because of how it works now. And your weapon levels, people are still looking into it. It seems like your weapon levels will go up faster earlier so like your first few levels will come to you pretty quick like quicker than any other versions but then they tend to taper at, after that so it makes maybe the beginning of the game not so brutal as it is in some other versions because you'll gain some stats on your weapon proficiencies very quickly very early so it's a, it's it's a very interesting final Fantasy II's remaster is very interesting because it's like mechanically different than all the rest overall Seems to be more, a little bit easier, more like the GBA PSP versions, but it's not quite for the same reason. Sorry, I know that was getting a little bit into the weeds a bit, but Final Fantasy II. Well, like Final that. Fantasy II, yeah, it kind of deserves that because it always felt so different. And it was always kind of like, be careful not to do the X, Y, or Z. Or, and now it seems like it's made a little bit less obscure and a little bit more, a little less impenetrable. Yeah, so there, even just a small couple of like UI things make it easier to like digest what you're doing. At the end of every battle, the game will actually give you sort of a, an EXP bar for your weapon proficiency to sort of tell you how close you are to the next level of your weapon proficiency. Whereas in the original version, you'd kind of have to, it was tucked away in a menu, you'd have to, it would, only, it would show you when you leveled up, but you'd have to like go to a menu to kind of see like what your level was 
and how close you were to the next. And just having it appear in like a nice little bar at the end of battles, it's just like a nice little thing just to see every time like, oh, okay, so my weapon level is eight and I'm halfway to nine. And it's stuff like yeah, that. like I didn't I didn't level up, but I can see I still am in the pro- in the process of progressing. So I did gain mm-hmm. something from this battle. So I'm actually surprised the original game had a bar at all. I'm surprised it didn't just go like, oh, your score is oh, didn't. The original game actually didn't have a bar. It literally just said like, I'm totally not surprised. I guess I'll put it that way. <laughs> it just said like your weapon stat was like level seven with 76 proficiency. And then you had to get to 100 to, to go to level oh, eight. Oh, I'm just surprised it even had a proficiency number. I'm surprised it just wasn't like, it is seven now. Shouldn't. Keep using it. Eventually it'll be eight. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, the Final Fantasy II's remastered soundtrack is also very good. It's so good to the point where it's like, I had did not expect them to go this hard on some of the tracks in this game, especially like some of the dungeon tracks. The overworld theme, it's different than the Final Fantasy or the PS1 version, but uh, it's still very good. The town themes are all very good, and it, it makes me excited for what they're going to do with like Final Fantasy 4, 5, and 6 music. Because those, obviously, those original versions were on Super Nintendo, so they had a better sound chip, sound font, versus these original games. But it's like, if they went this hard for Final Fantasy II, what could they do for Final Fantasy VI, which has a really well-known and well-regarded soundtrack, like, already? Um, it's interesting. Well, that also might, like, yeah, because it's like, well, if if 1, 2, and 3 are today and they're not going to keep an original toggle, then... I hope they do it justice. It seems like you should be pretty confident that they will based on how well they did one, two, and three. But people are also more attached, seemingly, right. to exactly. soundtracks of like four and six specifically. Like so, if you're the like, type of person who fell in love with Final Fantasy VI 25 or whatever years ago it was, um, like, and you've been listening to those tracks for that long, any change is going to sound wrong, right? So, right. Um, but yeah, I think it's overall a pretty good port. There's a few weird issues like the font. Um, they cut some of the content, which is sort of like, I, I don't know why you just, would it really have been that big a deal to keep it in? Uh, I don't know. Talking about like so, the, uh, like the Dawn of Souls content. The yeah. PBA like the extra stuff. dungeons in the extra storyline. I just don't, it, it, it wasn't bad content. It's not like, I'm not saying it's absolutely necessary either. It's just, I'm not sure why you would actually make the hard decision. No, we're not going to include it. I'm just like, why not? Right. But whatever <laughs> so. yeah maybe, maybe it's something on how these games were developed yeah maybe. we don't know like the background of that but yeah it was interesting to hear you uh, follow up on your thoughts on one and two and maybe we'll shortly see follow up and once you get to three because obviously three is this the first time this version of the game has been available in english officially in any way and obviously hopefully a console release is in the works seems like a weird omission not to have to, not to have it but Maybe they'll all be packaged together. I'm not sure. Like it's all just speculation at this point. Why it was skipped? What decision? Why the decision was made? How it'll? Pr- it feels like people are confident that it will eventually come to the consoles because why wouldn't it? But then also they're just like why? Why isn't it now? Like well, we don't know. Like Square Enix is just gonna do what it does sometimes. So a few of the other uh, features that were up on the site for this week, alongside all of these releases that I do want to just kind of quickly go through. Uh, we do, you talked at length on last podcast about Chris Tales. You basically wrote up your formal review. I think you basically elaborated on all your thoughts on the podcast last week. So we don't need to like go back over them, but we do now also have it packaged as the, uh, as the write up on the review. So that's up on the site. We did get a, uh, review up for the Skyward Sword remaster. 
we talked about this game a fair bit. Uh, I feel weird because all of our podcast regulars don't think very highly of Skyward Sword, apparently, I've learned over the last month and a half. Uh, but our reviewer for it, Nathan, is a little bit more positive on it. So he uh, he wrote a, a pretty good review for that remaster up on the site. Speaking of the music for the Final Fantasy Pixel remasters, Alex Donaldson did basically write up how he felt about the music and how it's just like kind of the de facto defining feature of these remasters, if anything. So basically just talking about the history of that, about who was responsible for the composition and the arrangements. Uh, what else? We have a bunch of guides for Final Fantasies 1, 2, and maybe not 3 yet, but some of the some of the stuff, if you haven't, if you didn't know already, but RPG site is kind of built from the ashes of an unofficial Final Fantasy site from the early 2000s. None of us were here at the time, but there was like a lot of work done about the original Final Fantasy games, like 1 through 10. And some of that stuff, we just kind of, uh, Alex was the spearhead behind this, kind of repackaged and repurposed for the Pixel Remasters. So if you want to know anything about the mechanics, the secrets, how to play guides, maps of Final Fantasy 1, 2, and maybe 3, they're up on the site. And then, of course, the reviews for Greatest Attorney, Neil the World Ends With You, and Fuga as well. We also do have a, we also do have a guide on the site for the um, Neo The World Ends With You secret reports if you finish the game. So that's how you get the secret ending. So that, that's up, up on the site as well. And then, of course, the two YouTube videos that we mentioned, the casual mode for Fuga and the video review for The Greatest Attorney. As for major headlines for the week, uh, sad to say there aren't any. There's a couple things we can kind of talk about. I don't know how much mileage we'll get out of this, but we did speak a couple weeks ago about a small Final Fantasy 16 tease that producer Naoki Yoshida mentioned during a Final Fantasy 14 letter from the producer event. You know, Yoko Taro and uh, a few others had kind of prodded him about the status of 16's development, and he had mentioned that the English voice acting was almost wrapped up and people kind of you know extrapolated from there about what it means for the release date and maybe we'll see it sooner than you think and how he also meant caution that it might not show up at tokyo game show well yoshida also showed up on a japanese stream last week on washagana tv and clarified uh, a fact that i don't think we knew at the time about how the english voice acting is actually the the baseline voice acting for the game. It's where all the, the mocap and the, the lip syncing and the facial capture is going to be matched to the British English voice acting voice acting sessions and how the Japanese recording is going to start shortly. So the English is being done ahead of the Japanese voice acting. So just kind of people again are sort of extrapolating what that means for the game. It's not the first time we've seen this happen, but I think it is the first time for Final Fantasy. I don't know if there's a whole lot we can deduce from that. But it does, we haven't, the, the Japanese voice acting hasn't started yet, should be starting shortly. I think it just, you know, the game clearly has, I shouldn't say clearly, but it, it seems to have a very high Western fantasy kind of style to it. You know, that, that much was apparent in the original trailers and whatnot. And it seems like just as part of that, you know, vision of what the game, what they want the game to be, like this would make sense for this to be have English voice acting as our base this time around for this game. Um, obviously, it'll probably have you know, you know, a handful of different voice languages, but just as like the facial capture base language um, is just part of the vision of what they feel like this world, what it suits, and kind of the themes and 
the the, the uh, imagery it evokes. So I think it's interesting. Um, like you said, I'm sure there's been a handful of Japanese games that are like this. I think Resident Evil 8 was the same way. In terms I know of for that, Kingdom Hearts, they also make sure to really have the match the English Disney. voices. Yeah, because of the Disney, like that's the iconic voices. I presume I can't speak for them, obviously, even in Japan, where they all those Disney characters have official Japanese seiyus as well. But just globally, the English VAs for all those characters is kind of what people attribute to them. So, but like for example, Resident Evil Eight and Resident Evil, even the original games were in English. But like Resident Evil 8's voice acting and mocap was done in like a California studio, I think. Um, the Kojima games, he's very big on the uh, on getting certain Western English actors to mocap, uh, you know, stuff like that. So, also I think uh, in terms of Square Enix, Forspoken is probably another game that's going with English actors, like the main. Oh well, yeah, one of the one. Obviously, this is on their global streams and their global events. But one of the first, the, one of the very first things they kind of re- revealed for that game was the actress for right. the main character there, and I don't remember what the character's name is. Like but, uh, yeah, a, th- a British actress. Yeah, that's one of the very first things they revealed there. So obviously, Square Enix is really trying to push this kind of global audience, global global release sort of thing. And uh, you mentioned the Western high fantasy kind of what Final Fantasy sixteen evokes. And whenever I think Western high fantasy, I think of like. Tolkien, The Witcher, and D and D. So people definitely made Witcher Final comparisons Fantasy. when they saw the Final Fantasy 16 trailer, especially in the enemy design. We don't know if we'll see it at a Tokyo Game Show. Some people think the fact that they haven't done Japanese voice acting yet, people are less uh, confident that we'll see this sooner rather than later. People are trying to take these little nuggets of information and kind of extrapolating them well beyond what's reasonable. Like, just be patient. We'll learn more when we learn more. It's kind of my mindset on it. We did get an official announcement for something that we brought up on the podcast months ago, and that was the crossover game between uh, Neptunia and Senran Kagura. And I don't remember what we called it at the time, what the like Japanese translated name was. It was called like Ninja Tyson, but the official localized name was revealed and a localization was announced for Neptunia cross Senran Kagura Ninja Wars. This is exactly what it sounds like, a crossover game between those two series officially going to come out in the west for playstation 4 this year it is releasing in september in japan so we'll get it not long after them unfortunately i don't think anyone on this cast can speak at length about either of these series the only thing that i know is that um senran kagura has been pretty quiet since like estival versus it had like the peach beach splash it had a couple mobile games but it hasn't really had like a mainline game as far as i know I mean, it's also sort of true for uh, Neptunia. It's been just a bunch of spinoffs recently. Or, so or like remakes like, and remasters. I feel like both of these franchises have, you know, they're smaller franchises. Both of them have their dedicated fan base, but neither have had a, quote, mainline title in a while. So it's sort of like now you're in you're both of you are in another spinoff, but together this time. Yeah, I only play like. One of the spinoffs. I never actually beaten like a mainline game. I do know like some of the concepts of it, but let's not get too deep into that. One of our newer contributors, Nathan Lee, is I know a big Neptunia fan, so I'm sure he'll be more than happy to uh, cover this game once it comes out. So it'll be interesting. I don't know if we'll get him on the podcast, but it'll be interesting to see what he thinks of it. Uh, I don't know what his history is with Cinema Figura, but I do know he likes the Neptune games. Unfortunately, we're not the place to go to get like any more <laughs> elaborate takes than that, but. 
really at least it's something for the fans of these two series to look forward to looks kind of like a fun crossover that from, from the outside looking in i don't know it seems like these two sort of these two kind of aesthetics kind of can mesh together in interesting ways we will follow up once we have someone knowledgeable on to talk about those at length we got in our as we continue to ramp up to the release of tales of our eyes as we have brought on the podcast the last couple of weeks, we got a new character trailer this time for Kisara. This is the Paladin Holy Knight with a mace and shield. Kind of the same things that we saw with Law and Rinwell. I'm still annoyed by like this. I don't know if it's only an English language effect, but all the combat chirps when they shout out their attack names sounds like they're in a fishbowl. So that is that is the first thing my brain goes to whenever I watch these character trailers. It seems they like did it's an additional also- effect. Yeah, it just it just it just annoys me for some reason. Anyways, the more interesting thing here is they showed off a pretty short trailer, actually a pair of different trailers. the The American branch and the European branch released slightly different versions of highlighting some of the secondary systems in the game, like fishing, cooking, and skits. So anyone who is familiar at all with Tales series in any way knows exactly what skits are secondary events usually not related to the main story where the characters are just allowed to kind of interact kind of gives you sort of those characterization you know nuggets and just how how these people would behave outside of the premise of the story usually involve involving their 2d artwork and now instead it seems like what they're doing with tales of arise is a little bit different instead of using like having the 2D artwork and having the four characters arranged left to right in, on, the, on the screen with text boxes. They're doing kind of the Scarlet Nexus thing where you kind of get like these moving windows where you'll get like the portrait of the character on the left in a rectangle and it's the 3D render of the character speaking or posing. And then the other characters will like chime in and then their, their little portraits will appear. Um, like I said, Scarlet Nexus is what I think of. There's probably other games that have done similar things. But it's very different from what I would typically associate with what a Tales of Skit looks like. So I I don't like it. I don't know. It's It feels like you don't gain anything from doing it this way. I don't know if you had any other takes. I mean, I don't like it either, but Tales of, Tales of Arise is ruined now. Sorry. It reminds me of like Star Ocean 4 when it was released in the West and they replaced the 2D artwork with the 3D renders, which that was over 10 years ago was it over 10 years about 10 years ago yes. and it it just didn't look very good and tales of arise is i think even with 3d renders a much better looking game i think i even mentioned before that it's just like the the fact that they took several years off of the series to lead up to arise even even the renders and the 3d models are very very pretty but something about the way that they involved them in these skits just feels like I feel like we lose a little bit of something. I don't know. And I'm not saying you have to be tradition. Like you have to do it one way. No other way is allowable. But I just look at what um, they presented and I'm just, I'm just, I don't see it. I don't feel it. Go ahead. So enough about skits. The other things in the trailer <laughs> that were kind of interesting is that they showed you have fishing. Uh, other Tales Gotta games, have as, far as, I, as far as I know, didn't really have fishing. So like now there's fishing. Um, there's also like these sort of this is this seems like it's become more and more common. There's like these campfire scenes, and I don't know if those are different from the skits or they're just a type of skit. But it seems like there's some sort of system now that sort of combines the skits, some of the cooking in previous games, and maybe this new fishing stuff into like, you know, you're you're a traveling party and you can set up a campfire 
and have these more like lower tension bonding moments, skits, things like that. Cooking. Developers um, played plenty of Final Fantasy 15, apparently. Yeah, that yeah that sort of sort of thing basically. So it seems like there's that's taking you know a stronger hold in this game compared to some of the previous games. And yes, they had cooking and skits, but like in terms of incorporating it into this sort of campfire bonding sort of setting. So that's in the game now as well. We had two two short trailers from the two Western branches showing this stuff. Obviously, we're kind of at the point where we have one more one more character introduction to go with Dohalim, unless they go into like antagonists or anything like that. Uh, so a couple months away, we'll actually be able to talk about this game for real, I feel like. We're at that point of the marketing where really getting kind of into the nitty gritty. I think it still looks really fun. I just will I will miss the old style of skit. Here's where we go into the section of the podcast where we're basically going to be talking a lot of release dates. And this might be a bit more rapid fire. A lot of these, I don't know if we'll be able to dwell on too much. So let's just kind of go through them. Uh, first off, we've got a bunch of like games that have already released getting DLC or expansions or other sorts of added content in the later part of the summer. And uh, For some of these, I wish George was here, and you'll see why in a moment. Uh, for one, Assassin's Creed Valhalla will get its second DLC expansion, The Siege of Paris, on August 12th. So Adam, you're the only one here that's played a significant amount of Valhalla. Are you, are you excited for this at all? So I played the uh, Wrath of the Druids expansion, which is basically Assassin's Creed Valhalla, but Ireland. And it's, it's in a sense, I mean this, I don't mean this too disparagingly. It's just like more Assassin's Creed Valhalla. It's more of the same. Which that game's already pretty sizable, and it's the the expansion is pretty sizable. It's it's a twenty five dollar DLC by itself. Wrath of the Druids was, and I think the DLC took me like fifteen hours, um, completionist, like doing the storyline and the new map. So it's it's pretty sizable for a DLC, but um, it's had like the same sort of format and style of the game itself. So it's like if you if you love Assassin's Creed Valhalla, great. Here's more of it. Um, new new abilities new storyline new you know you're exploring a very similar world with, a, with its own flavor and so i assume siege of paris is going to be more of that only the french version this time but like i doubt it's gonna you know it's a dlc it's not gonna like change anyone's opinions on the game after after you know at the very least dozens of hours into it so well it's i guess this is this is gonna be the new normal once we get to Assassin's yeah, Creed well, infinity or infinite whatever it's called where it's just mm-hmm. going to be like every other year, they'll be like, here's China, here's Japan, here's mm-hmm. Brazil. I don't know. Like, it'd be one of those things where you're either on the platform or you're not. Seems like it's already true in some ways. You're either, you're either interested in Valhalla or you're not. Well, if anything exciting comes out of Siege of Paris, let us know. We'll just kind of leave it at that. Uh, the Marvel's Avengers expansion Black, Black Panther War for Wakanda launches on August 17th. So this, I think some of the rumor mongering is that this was supposed to come out earlier, but they kind of delayed it or reshuffled their schedule due to the unfortunate death of Chadwick Boseman. Um, they did announce that Chris Judge, the voice of Kratos, or the Elk from Stargate Alliances, if that's more your jam, will be voicing uh, Black Panther. So people might find that interesting. Uh, we might have to revisit this once George is on the podcast again, because I think he's the only person that's really exciting, excited. About more Marvel's the, Avengers. What's, not, what's notable about this expansion is that it's it's the third 
new character added to the roster from launch. But like the first two characters were Hawkeye and Hawkeye. Yeah, that was a weird decision. And I'm surprised. Remember all the hoopla about the Spider-Man Sony exclusive thing? Like that hasn't happened yet. I'm actually like really surprised that's I actually looked. Um, so they, they announced Spider-Man. It was right. It was right around when the game launched, or like shortly before it. So like August of 2020, and they actually said like Spider-Man is coming in early 2021. Like that's what that was with the announcement, and you know <laughs> that didn't happen. Uh, obviously, there's a pandemic, and maybe the launch didn't go as well. But you know it was announced in August, so like the pandemic was well underway by then. But they haven't said anything since, so who knows? But it's also worth noting that. Other than the mention of Spider-Man that we know is coming at some point, this Black Panther expansion is the biggest for the game since launch with the new character, new story, boss, and whatnot. It's also like the end of the current roadmap. So I'm assuming more is going to be added. Like that's probably a safe bet. But up to now, we have sort of had an idea of what's coming. But now it's just like yeah. outside of Spider-Man, we don't really know. Are they just going to pull out the rug under it and be like, oh, we're done. That's it. Which some people might say, like, thank God. Some people might, like, really be invested. So uh, we'll get George's take once this releases and see if there's anything cool or compelling about this edition. Uh, And a similar one, this is on the very next day. Black Panther comes out on August 17th. Uh, Mortal Shell gets its first DLC as well as its Steam release on August 18th. So I know he... Uh, he being George really talked up his experience with Mortal Shell. He thought it was like a really good take on that ice style of game. It's epic exclusive window will have ended. I don't know if George plans to go back to this, go back to Mortal Shell for this. If so, we'll see what he thinks. If not, let it be. But Guild Wars 2 is also getting a new expansion and it was uh we knew what we are it was already announced, End of Dragons. And now it was delayed out of 2021 and into February of 2022. They had a reveal stream where they showcased a new trailer for it, some of the new uh, classes that they're adding for it, and basically kicking off what I presume will be a marketing cycle for the next half year leading up to that. They're basically going to show the new specializations kind of in sequence for the next several weeks, right? Yeah, the way that Guild Wars works is that they have a core set of nine classes, and then with each expansion, they give they give them specializations where after the first one, you basically each class could tear up once. After the second one, they had a second option to tear up into. Think like Fire Emblem, the Sacred Stones or something like that. Uh, and now after this the next one, they're adding another set of, of options. So basically you play as a warrior. If you've got all the box expansions, once you tear up, you can pick three different options and they're going to go into like this week we're introducing the new elite spec for necromancer or the new elite spec for warrior or for ranger or whatever so that's going to be basically a big part of their marketing push and i think that's smart because it kind of is like this drip feed where they're like this week we're going to announce what you ranger mains will be able to get into with the new expansion and things like that so they introduced some of the features Uh, i think that the response has been kind of lukewarm but kind of it it was it was better than their their previous attempt at this uh what they did a couple of years ago with the ice brood saga wasn't received very well it seems like this was done a little bit better not a home run but i think people are pretty excited digimon survive still exists uh we have been it feels like this is deja vu for this game because originally it was supposed to release in 2019 and then 2020 then 2021 uh during a toy animation financial results meeting and toy animation is you know behind the digimon ip 
Digimon Survive has been officially delayed to 2022. I think we kind of all knew this was coming, but it's still nice to see a reference and that it's not vaporware, at least in the sense that no one's talking about it. So I know a lot of people are really excited about this. When we share the delayed news, I think it's the most like social engagement we've ever got announcing a delay. We're not announcing, but relaying the news of the delay. So we will reconvene next year to see if Digimon Survive uh, has a pulse. So uh, keep waiting for that one. And we also got a delay for Crimson Desert. So we talked about this game early in the year, like February, March, how it was. This is Crimson Desert from Pearl Abyss, the same studio behind Black Desert Online. Crimson Desert was originally announced as seemingly as like a sister MMO. They've sort of changed tact and now have like marketed it as like this online cooperative MMO experience. They really still haven't quite nailed down exactly what this game is, but they announced on their social feeds that uh, Crimson Desert is still currently in the middle of development and will be pushed back to uh, an unspecified release date. They don't even specify 2022. They just say it's not releasing this year. Excuse me. It is now a massive open world action adventure game with content designed for both solo play and multiplayer. <laughs> it- it feels like they're just trying to cast as wide a net as possible. Like if people aren't yeah. interested in MMO, they're like, no, 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 it's it's not an MMO. It's an online game, uh, but but you can play it multiplayer. And so and then there's people who really... are interested in MMOs like, yeah, you, it, it is also an MMO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I know they did a big blowout reveal of this game, but they, they kind of showcase it as if it were a single player game back when people thought it was an MMO. I guess right now, maybe they're, maybe they're probably still making some of those decisions on their end, which is why the message been so foggy exactly what they want it to be yep uh not even dated just unspecified basically they're still working on it the uh adventure rpg baldo this is kind of the zelda-like game with the ghibli-esque art style that has shown up in a few little indie streams uh it's it's dated now it's releasing on august 27th for pretty much everything playstation 4 xbox one nintendo switch pc and even apple arcade that one will be out in less than a month some people look excited about this game, but um, I saw somebody mention it like, like a great value Nino Kuni, and I, I can't help but like laugh because it does sort of <laughs> look like a Nino Kuni. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I was seeing it. So we're gonna kind of imitate know. Ghibli to the lowest extent that we can. Yeah, it's sort of like an unproven studio, like a you know a game from an unproven studio that has like an interesting you know idea. We'll see if they can hit it or not some of the other release dates that are upcoming um mary skelter finale which did already release release in japan last year in november is now dated for the west for playstation 4 and nintendo switch it will release in americas on september september 30th and in europe on october 1st don't know if anyone here has played the first two games but this is the uh... Uh, i did i actually wrote a review on it <laughs> oh okay do you want to review uh mary skelter finale um i'm interested uh, i i want to okay. see where this goes i mean there's a lot of there's some loose plot threads that i'm kind of interested to see where it heads off but yeah so uh compile heart and idea factory released the uh the trailer for the localization announcement and release date so we have up those up on the site Blue Reflection Second Light, we have talked about a few times on the last couple podcasts, both the uh, the initial reveal and then some of the follow-up marketing that showcased some of the systems and new characters. It now officially has a uh, Western release date. So Blue Reflection Second Light 
release in Japan on October 21st. The Western release date will be shortly after in November. So on November 9th. We got an English subtitled version of the announcement trailer, but other than the release date, I think we've already kind of talked about this game at length. So another uh, holiday release for us on the What's interesting about this is that I believe it's like a three-week localization turnaround, roughly. Right. And I believe that's the the quickest for a Gust Koei Tecmo game. I think uh, Ryza was close. That was like a month or two. This is like less than a month. So it's almost... Getting there, getting closer to simultaneous. Do you think these things coming out a lot quicker because there's no dub involved? That's probably part of it. I mean, not was the original it Blue is. Reflection. Is it the original Blue Reflection have a dub? No, it no. didn't. Oh, okay. But we actually interviewed the Gus producer uh, a while back, maybe a year ago, and basically they said, "This is paraphrasing that they want to do simultaneous releases." But they also know that that makes doing a dub harder, like not necessarily mutually exclusive, but if they want, if there's enough demand for English voice acting and as well as simultaneous, like they have to, that's a consideration that'll require uh, effort, like more work, right. you know, pipeline in place to do that. But they just don't have it right now. And they don't even know if the demand is there. We'll see. I, I think they got this huge backlash when they released Atlier. Uh, Aisha, when it didn't have a, a Japanese dub, there were so many people complaining about it. And I guess after that, they put the Japanese dub back, like patched it in later. And you know, it was kept Japanese. Least, it seems like Japanese games are more and more popular these days. So, yes, there's uh, quite a lot of people who want to play in Japanese, but they're also more and more popular. There's more people who want to play in English too, which is why you see stuff like Yakuza getting dubbed again and, and whatnot. Um, but Gust, I don't think, has made that leap yet. Where is well, it? That's a vocal, is the, is, the both, right? is the audience big enough where putting the effort and money and budget in and people and time to do that is it worth it for the audience yet? Maybe, maybe not. Well, sometimes you see with some of those properties, like did they ever add the English dub? This is a different type of game, but did they ever add the English dub to that My Hero Academia fighting game? The, yeah, uh, they did. That was actually a very interesting justice. case where. That game came out Japanese only, and then they patched in an English dub because obviously that's a very popular anime, um, and people do watch the dub. And so they, Bound and Amco in that case, decided, hey, let's let's do the voice acting. And same thing with a uh, the upcoming Demon Slayer. Uh, Demon Slayer game, like right. that game's both with you know English and Japanese audio tracks as well. They think it's worthwhile to do that. So, yeah. And then we have the thing where. Um... 13 Sentinels, where it was originally going to come later, and then they worked really hard to get it out. You know, that was in the middle of all the pandemic, like where they thought it was going to because of that having to be delayed. But they managed to, they really put a lot of effort into that because they they must know that, you know, they've done their market research that they know that, yeah, you might be listening to this and say, like, why would you ever listen to English? But they seem to know that these properties are popular enough that they will get a return if they provide that option for people. And then finally, uh, I don't know why I put this as a stinger at the end of the podcast, but Death and Request 2 will release for Switch in 2022 in the West. So this game is already uh, you know, out, in both Japan, English and, and Japanese. But yeah, this is, the, uh, this is just the English version of the Switch release. Well, the so. Japanese version is not out yet either. But basically, Idea Factory International, they're just sort of slowly, one by one, taking their entire catalog and pushing it on switch like 
They did Fairy Fencer. They did Mega Dimension Neptunia. They did Dragon, Dragon Star, Star Varnier. They did yeah. the first Death End Request. Um, they're just sort of slowly just taking their games and like, all right, here's the Switch version. So it's it's well after launch, but just ports for, for the Switch audience, right? So, Well, you might say like, well, that's boring, but you know, Square Enix couldn't put the Final Fantasy remasters on Switch. So, so at least someone is. But I don't know. Well, I've, yeah, uh, I guess I guess Adam, as our primary news writer, look forward to announcing or retelling the whenever the Switch ports are announced for the Final Fantasy remasters because we all know they're coming, right? Well, let me know if it comes fix, with fixed font too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because you won't be able to do that on Switch. If you won't don't. do that with Switch. Well, a hack modified one. Right. If they don't change it on the publishers end. So yeah, lots of, you know, no no major earth-shaking announcements this week, but lots of cool releases. So we hope you're all enjoying whether it's Fuga Melodies of Steel or Greatest Attorney or Neo or Did you mention Horizon Zero or Forbidden West? I did mention that at the top of the delays. We didn't like okay. write an article about it, I don't think, but Well, it's yeah, not like that's... official. So it's just right. a, it's, it's been reported, reported by Bloomberg. But it's a sort of thing where it's like even outside of the RPG space if we if we're kind of saying that we don't expect Final Fantasy 16 this year, a lot of the like Xbox Studio Bethesda Studio RPGs aren't this year. Like it seems like this holiday season might be time for kind of these like under the radar Didn't franchises and IPs. Well, I guess hmm, that's kind of weird because that's not really under the radar, but it but it is like in a, in the West in a lot of ways secondary to Persona. So well, probably in, not in just in the West, but. Yeah, you got Shin Megami I mean, Tensei. You got Halo Infinite is kind of like the I mean, big. In terms of RPGs, like Battlefield, the two biggest RPGs releasing in like the last part of the year here are Tales of Arise and Shin Megami Tensei, and those are not like they're not like tiny franchises, but they're not big franchises. But that's just kind of the state of things right now. Is that those are the two headlines? Like, I guess you know, do you count uh, Guardians of the Galaxy? They call it an RPG, but it's you know, it's, we I haven't seen enough to. Like, well, we, I know we talked adventure. about this uh, after the E3 stream from Square Enix, but Guardians of the Galaxy is a weird one because it's hard to shake that stigma that even I, who am in the know of this, keep thinking of it as like this Marvel Avengers type game, but it's not. It's a single player, almost Mass Effect style game. It's, but I just keep thinking of it like, oh, it's just another one of those like forever games, but it, it's almost more like an Outriders or something, but Guardians of the Galaxy themed. But yeah, maybe this holiday season will be where we can get kind of like I fully expect that Shimogami Tensei 5 and Tales of Arise will set benchmarks for their respective series in terms of like sales and impact. And a lot of that is not only due to the fact that they look like really promising games, but the environment they're releasing in is kind of giving them that space. They're not going to be under the thumb of a Final Fantasy release or a big Western RPG release. Thanks for joining us. I went through in the middle of that podcast all of the different features that are up on the site. If you go to rpgsite.net, you can just find the whole slew of guides, features, reviews, all of that stuff. And even on our YouTube channel, I mentioned last week we had a few things coming. Again, that was largely thanks to James and his effort for some of the games that he's been covering. So thank you, James. Those are uh, That's the Fuga Casual Mode and the Greatest Attorney Video Review. Thanks. As always, you can find us on all of the social channels, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for RPG site and you'll find us. We will be back next week for another edition of the TetraCast. I anticipate we'll be talking a little bit more Final Fantasy, a little bit more Neo, The World Ends With You. And we might be talking a little bit about this near reincarnation mobile game, which I have been using as my gateway to 
the world of gotcha games. So look forward to that. But yes, we have people been playing that and hopefully we can get Josh on to talk about that as well. Welcome to Gotcha Hell. Yeah, here I am. I belong here now. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care, stay safe. We'll see you then.